Well, good morning, friends. It's a great joy and delight for me to be back at uh, Redeemer Church. Uh, some of you may remember that in 2019, I think it was in May of 2019, I came on three successive Sundays and uh, filled in while uh, Scott was on sabbatical. And I really enjoyed that and finding out something about the Shoals area and uh, Will Trapp kind of was my personal guide during those uh, Sundays and showing me around and making sure I was fed at lunchtime. And in the wonderful providence of God, here I am again. And it's just a delight to be back. And I brought with me this time an elder from Christ Presbyterian Church, where I was a pastor for a number of years. And I brought him because uh, he is on the McGowan team. And you've invited the McGowan team to help you during this transition process, find your next pastor. And so, Elder Jimmy Hodges came along with me today and uh, just to ride down. And I think he had come several weeks ago for the Discovery Weekend and to meet with the search committee. And I want to echo what the report said this morning. The most important thing you can do, well, there are really two important things that you can do if you're not a member of the search committee. And that is to pray earnestly uh, that God would bring to the surface, bring to the attention of the search committee his choice to be your next pastor. There's nothing more important than you can do it than to pray. And then secondly, uh, uh, leave them alone and don't badger them and try to extract information from them because uh, they have been trained and urged to keep confidences, and that's very, very important for lots of good reasons, and you just need to trust us on that. But this is an exciting season in, in the church's life, and uh, I am so pleased that the McGowan team is going to have an opportunity to walk with you through that, and I can assure you that uh, God has equipped that team to be of significant help to you. Uh, by the way, I'm still a part of that team in spite of my age, and uh, though I'm no, not in charge anymore, I'm still a part of the team, and uh, I'm proud that they uh, would want to continue with my name on the, uh, on the title of the organization. This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, and if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. Um, before we read from Luke chapter 15 this morning, I, I want to say to you that um, my good friend Tim Keller, who is now with the Lord, spent a lot of time on Luke chapter 15, and particularly the parable of the prodigal son, which is a part of that chapter. And uh, he wrote a book really based on the parable of the prodigal son called The Prodigal God. And... Um, uh, I was one of 10,500 people who joined the 3,000 there at St. Patrick's Cathedral back in July uh, to remember Tim and to worship the Lord and celebrate in his life. Uh, Tim and I were good friends, and I mention that because I think I have read or listened to everything Tim had to say on the parable of the prodigal son. And if you hear things this morning that sounds like Tim Keller, 
because you are a person who reads or listens to Tim Keller, um, I want to settle up front that uh, I'm going to give him credit for anything that sounds like Tim Keller this morning, because from time to time I'll mention him in the message. Um, uh, the second thing I want to say is that chapter 15 really consists of three parables that Jesus told about things that were lost. And, uh, and among the audience to which he was addressing his, his remarks at this point in his ministry were a large group of sophisticated, influential, highly skilled and trained religious leaders called scribes and Pharisees who happened to be very critical of Jesus and his ministry. And so Jesus had these folks in mind, along with you and me, as he told these three stories. And that's very important for you to remember. Because Jesus tells a story about a lost sheep, and he left the 99, the shepherd left the 99 to went looking for the lost sheep. And he tells also in this chapter a story about a poor lady who had very little money, and she lost a very valuable coin. And she dropped everything and found as much light as she could muster to search for that lost coin and did not rest until she had found it. And then he tells a story about a a wealthy man who had two sons. And one of those sons, the younger one, um, decided probably in a very immature, impulsive, irresponsible, disrespectful way that he was no longer happy at home and that he liked to be where the lights were bright and the streets were hopping with lots of activity and fun. And so he asked his father to give him his share of the inheritance so that he could leave home. And to our absolute amazement, the father, probably not immediately, but eventually, granted the son's wish. And I can imagine in my own mind, it's certainly not recorded in the, in the text, but I can imagine in my own mind that if he were living today, he would probably go and buy himself a BMW B3, a Z3, and with convertible probably red, uh, buy himself a very, very fancy uh, wardrobe and a lot of gold chains and... Uh, he would research what life is like in the big city, and finally one day pack everything that he had purchased and everything that he owned in that little Z3 with the top down and his shirt unbuttoned, maybe two buttons down, so that everybody could see his chains and the hairy chest that he had. And he left home, leaving a cloud of dust behind him, hit the freeway, and was headed to Broadway. And you know the story because it's well known. 
He got there, probably rented himself a very expensive penthouse because he was wealthy and hung around uh, fancy places. He began to make lots of friends, and they lived the high life for a good long time uh, because the inheritance was pretty large. But he finally ran out of money, and all of a sudden, the friends disappeared. And he hit the bottom. He hit the bottom. He was probably deeply involved in the drug culture. He maybe even contracted venereal diseases of some sort. And he wound up washing dishes in some seedy restaurant in New York City. Actually, the text says he was feeding pigs. And he was eating the husk from the corn for his nutriment. And then one day he came to his senses, it says, and he came home. And on the way home, he he developed a speech, and he said, I'm going to say to my father, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Uh, treat me as a hard hand, but I'd like to come back. But I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as a hard, hard servant because I've disgraced your name and foolishly wasted the money that you've given to me. Much to his surprise, even before he reached the house, his father raced out of the house, probably because he'd been standing at the window on a daily basis expecting his son to come home, maybe with tears running down his cheeks. And then one day, he notices this boy coming down the lane in rags, gaunt, frail, only skin and bones, but he recognized him as his son, and he rushed out of the house, and he embraced him, and he didn't turn him loose until they had gotten in the house, and when he got in the house, he said to the servants, this my son who was lost has now come home, and he planned a big party, killed the fatted calf, put a robe on him, a ring on his finger, new shoes on his bare feet. And then we pick up at that point in Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 25. Because at verse 25 we read, Meanwhile, party was just getting underway. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've slaved for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet, you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when your son, this son of yours, who has squandered your property and prostitutes with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this story is so familiar to us and yet pregnant with new and deep meaning every time we, we read it. We're thankful that you've given it to us. And we're thankful for all the wonderful lessons that we find in it about who you are as our father and friend. Lord, we're thankful that you've preserved this story, that it is without error. And now we would pray that as we reflect on it, that you would, by the Holy Spirit who authored this word, also speak to our hearts. Give us grace to shut out all that would distract us so that we might hear you speak to us in the deep inner recesses of our hearts and minds through this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. My first ministry as a young pastor was a church planning ministry in the suburbs of Atlanta. And in those years, I met and came to love and respect a young associate pastor in a nearby church, a nearby Presbyterian church, who was a good bit younger than I, but was one of the most effective preachers and one of the most visionary young pastoral leaders that I'd ever known. And we became friends, and our paths often crossed. When I eventually was called to South Alabama to First Presbyterian Church in Dothan to be their senior pastor, I needed a partner in ministry, and his name came up immediately to my mind. By this time, he had accepted a call in Florida and had been there for several years. And I called him up on the telephone, and I said, would you, would you be willing to, to come to Dothan and, uh, and talk with me about the possibility of us becoming partners in ministry. And it interested him enough for him to make the trip along with his wife, and we had a wonderful weekend together. And I had great hopes that God might be calling him to Dothan. But after a few weeks, he called and he said, I don't believe that God is calling me to Dothan. And eventually, he accepted a call to a, 
a church back in Atlanta where he was a senior pastor. After several years, I got a phone call one day from another friend who told me that that ministry that he was now leading in Atlanta had imploded because of marital infidelity on the part of my friend. As a result of his marital infidelity, he had destroyed his own marriage, and he had destroyed the marriage of another pastor on his staff. He resigned his ministry and left town with all the wreckage behind him. The presbytery did what it had to do. It exercised discipline, but he didn't respond, and ultimately they deposed him officially from the, from the PCA and removed him and his new girlfriend from the privilege of the Lord's Supper. I'll not use his real name. I'll just simply refer to the pastors, Joe, and the lady that was now his girlfriend and eventually his marriage as Sarah. When I heard the news, my heart sank. I felt a measure of disgust and frankly, anger. Because of the reproach that it brought to the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the gospel, and the hurt that had been inflicted on a wife and a husband and several children, But it soon faded from my mind, and I kind of dismissed the whole thing, and I proceeded on in the ministry and eventually accepted a call to Nashville, Tennessee, and Christ Presbyterian Church. And in the spring of 1996, Joe showed up. I didn't know he was in worship until after the service was over and I was greeting people as they left, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye, he was standing over to the side. And when everybody had left the building, he approached me and he said, do you remember me? And I said, yes, of course I remember you. And he said, Charles, today... Is the first time I've been inside of a church building in almost 20 years. My life is a mess. I desperately need a pastor. Would you be willing to meet with me? I looked at my calendar and I said, could we meet tomorrow morning? And he said, yes. I went home, and I 
had lunch, and then I took my normal Sunday afternoon walk. And as I was walking that Sunday afternoon, I began to reflect on my past knowledge and relationship and my cursory knowledge of what had happened in his life. And I once again became angry and disgusted. And before my walk was over, God had begun to convict me of my condemnation and judgmental spirit. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I was not ready to meet with Joe. And so after a restless night, I got up in the wee hours of the morning, well before daylight, and I went to my study at home. And I got on my knees before the Lord, and he took me immediately to Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal son. And as I read that story, it was as if God himself were speaking clearly to my heart. And he said to me, Charles, you're the elder brother in this story. My wayward son has come to his senses, and he's on a journey home, and you're angry and judgmental and critical. And God said to me, at 8 o'clock this morning, I want you to go to him and embrace him and ask him to forgive you for your judgmentalism and show him grace and take his hand and lead him home. At 8 o'clock, we met. It was a bad choice, but we had chosen to meet at a Shoney's restaurant not too far from where I live in Nashville. We should have chosen a much more private place. But I did choose an out-of-the-way corner in the restaurant, and we had breakfast. And then I looked at him, and I said, Tom, before we begin our story this morning, our talk this morning, I've got to tell you that I've had a struggle since we first spoke yesterday. And I need to confess to you that I've been very judgmental and condemning of you and even disgusted and angry, and I had no right to be. And God has made it clear that I need to ask your forgiveness and say to you, I want to be your shepherd and lead you home. 
And so I reached across the table, and I took his hand, and I said, Tom, uh, Joe, will you forgive me? And with tears in his eyes, he said, you'll never know what it means to me that you would ask for my, for my forgiveness. I'm the one who needs to ask for forgiveness. And then for a solid hour and a half, he poured out his story to me in all of his ugliness with tears streaming down his cheeks. And he said, Charles, I've considered suicide on numbers of occasions. I've made such a mess of my life. I've hurt so many people. He says, it's almost as if I have shaken the very gates of hell and God will not let the doors be opened. And he says, I've got to go home. But I don't know how. And I took his hand and I said, I'm going to let God use me as he sees fit to help us develop a plan to get back home. And so this morning, I just want to share with you what God taught me after I discovered that I was the elder brother. There may be some prodigal sons in this congregation this morning, but most of us are more apt to be elder brothers. Prodigal sons are getting over last night's party. They're not in church. Elder brothers are apt to be here. Here's what I learned. I learned that it's possible to be very close to God and very involved in God's work and still be a long ways away from him. In this story, there's not a whole lot of difference, really, between the, the prodigal son and the older brother except for the things they did. <laughs> the prodigal son was young, impulsive, immature, disrespectful, and he was open and honest and transparent about it. The indications are that the older brother probably didn't like being there. but he chose not to leave. The indications are that he didn't have a close relationship to his father, even though they worked shoulder to shoulder there on the estate. Both in their own way did not have, neither one had, an intimate relationship with their father. Tim Keller said that in this parable, 
Jesus gives us yet another way to be lost. You can be lost by being bad. You can also be lost by doing good. When I was in seminary, I, was like, I had a classmate who was about 15 years older than I, and I came late to seminary. So he must have been 45 or 50, which today is pretty young for me. <laughs> but one day we were sitting, and he said, Charles, do you know that I was a member of a church all my life, an elder in the church for 10 years, but I didn't know Jesus. And then one day in the providence of God, somebody commended me for what a good Christian I was, and God convicted me that I wasn't a Christian at all. I was just very religious. I, I, I just have to develop a habit of going to church every Sunday and being generous in terms of what I dropped in the orphan plate, but I didn't know God. I was just religious. As far as I was concerned, the church was just another humanitarian organization that sought to do good in the community, and I wanted to be a good citizen. And I happened to be a Sunday school boy who grew up in a church, but I didn't know Jesus. I even had a friend once who, who was a pastor in Dallas, Texas when he became a Christian. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that you can be so involved, so close, doing things that you would think would be important for Christians to do, and yet not really know God. Which leads me to a second thing that I learned in the middle of this. That so many of us live our lives believing that somehow we can earn by our good works God's love. Now, the Younger brother, the prodigal, had no problem with that, but the older brother stayed home because he probably yearned for his father's love but didn't feel it. And he worked hard. He never really rebelled in any way against his father. He, uh, uh, he was there at mealtime. He, he and his dad sat at the same table and ate their meals and they work with the same servants day in and day out. But one day he was in the field and he saw something happening at the big house. And so he, he left the fields and started going to the big house. And when he got there, he began to hear music and noise and a, a lot of activity. And he saw one of the servants out in the yard and he said, what's going on in there? And he says, hadn't you heard? Your younger brother has come home. And we've been ready for a big party. 
Come on in. Your dad would love to see you. Come on in. I'm not going in. So the servant went inside and said, your oldest son is outside and he won't come in. And so his father went outside to him. And the son begins the conversation, and this record says he was angry. And he says, I don't understand. I, I've, I've slaved for you. I've worked for you. I've never disobeyed you. I've never misused your money, and yet you've never even provided a goat to celebrate me. And now you're celebrating this wayward son of yours who probably is bringing syphilis into the house and all kinds of diseases from the, from the city, who's disgraced your name and wasted the money that you gave him, and you're celebrating him? And the record says that the father got real close to him and probably put his arm around him and held him tight. And he uses the most tender word that can be found in the Greek language to address his son, Technon, as if to say, my dear son, don't you know how much I love you and how precious you are to me? You're always with me. But now your son who did such foolish, your brother who did such foolish things and who was on the verge of death and being totally lost and he was lost to us has come home. Come on in. Tim Keller said that this passage of Scripture gives us the clues as to whether or not we're elder brotherish in our attitudes. And he lists three things. He says, if there's a subtle anger in your heart when you see people who have done terrible, evil things repented and come into Christ, or turning their hearts to God, or God prospering people who are evil or who have no regard for God at all, that's a sign that you may be elder brotherish. And he said, the second thing is, if you if you're faithful and 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 regular and generous and been involved in God's work but it doesn't bring joy to your heart? Tim Keller says, <clears throat> it's duty with no beauty. If you just do it again and again and again with no joy and no excitement about serving God, you may be suffering from an elder brother attitude a little bit elder brotherish. I've slaved for you. It's not I've served you with joy. 
I've slaved for you. And then if you have a, a, a smug, superior attitude, as if you're better than people like the prodigal son, this son of yours, this son of yours has wasted your money, has brought reproach to your name, as if to say, I'm better than that. That may be a sign that you're elder brotherish, to use a Tim Keller term. That's a message that we people who are members of the local church need to hear again and again and again, because regardless of how much we love Jesus, we have a tendency. We have a tendency to move in that direction because of our sinful nature. And there are so many, so many people who join a church believing that somehow by joining a church and dropping money in the orphan plate and being a part of the ushering team, et cetera, et cetera, that'll, that'll make everything right between you and God, that you are really earning your salvation. And the fact of the matter is, it's all by grace. And here's the last lesson I learned, and it comes right out of the text. God, our Heavenly Father, means for all of His children to join the party. Not those, just those who've been Christians from a young child and always done everything right and served God with joy, etc., but the people who've made all the wrong choices and all the wrong decisions and made a mess of their life, and here just a few weeks before they die, they repent of their sins, and they turn their heart to Jesus in brokenness. I correspond regularly with a man in one of the prisons in New York State. As a matter of fact, he's the man who shot and killed John Lennon. And we love each other dearly, and he calls me his pastor. He calls me Rev. And we correspond regularly by email. And he has found great joy in his newfound relationship with Jesus. You, you see, the fact of the matter is, God wants all of his children, the ones who've been terribly bad and the ones who've always been good, to be a part of the party. And the price of admission is the same for both. God's grace. God's grace. But somehow it's harder for elder brothers and sisters to get that straight. I don't know whether the elder brother ever came in or not. That's not a part of the story. Jesus didn't choose to tell us the outcome of the story. And I think he had a reason in not telling us. 
because he wants each one of us to evaluate where we are with regard to the family of God. If he didn't go in, he missed a lot. He, he missed the opportunity to be transformed. He missed the opportunity to, to enter into a deep, intimate relationship with his father, and he missed the opportunity to be restored to his brother, and he missed the joy of the big party if he didn't go in. And so it almost took a year, and Joe and Sarah together completed the long list that we developed together of things they needed to do in their journey back home. Lots of heartache, lots of tears, a lot of anger expressed to them. But I tutored them, and I said, humble yourself, confess your sin, and beg for forgiveness. I knew his former wife's parents. They were members of the church in Dothan. And I remember the father saying, if I ever run across him again, if I have a tire iron in my hand, I'm going to wrap it around his neck. And he said it in anger. His former in-laws were on the list. His former wife, his children were on the list. Her former husband, her children were on the list. And then the presbytery was on the list. And they went back to the presbytery at a special call meeting and confessed their sin and pled for forgiveness. And then the church that he pastored was on the list. And the session of that church was on the list. And during the course of the year, we kept in close touch. And he would give me reports. And then the day came when I said to Joe, I think it's time for you to meet with our session. And he did. He had a folder of all the letters he had written Certification from the presbytery that he had been restored. Certification from the session of his church that he had been restored and forgiven. And with tears streaming down his cheeks, he told the whole story to the elders of the church in Nashville. And the elders, with shouts of joy and with tears down their eyes, running from their eyes, gathered around them and praised the Lord for his work of grace. And then Joe said, our sin was so public and did such harm to the body of Christ. We think this congregation needs to know the story and we'd be willing to tell it. And so on the Sunday when they were to officially be introduced to the congregation, I allowed them to tell their story. And then after they told their story, I preached a short sermon, unlike today, (laughs) on the parable of the prodigal son. 
And then I said, why don't we all get on our knees and figure out where we are in that story? Some of you are parents, and you're weeping every day for your prodigal children. Some of you are prodigals, and you're thinking about coming back home. Probably a lot of us are elder brothers or elder brother-ish in our attitudes. Let's talk to God about it. And we did. And after we finished praying and had the final benediction, the congregation gathered around them and welcomed them home. So today, you can find yourself in the story. And I want to suggest that, that that's the way to apply this passage of Scripture. Where are you in this story? And wherever you are, it's all about God's grace. It's all about his love, his mercy. It's all about the fact that the people who've done bad and the people that have done good are part of the same family. Some have very checkered, terrible past. Some have very, very clean slates. But we all are dependent on grace. So as you come to the table, thank him for that. And come clean with God about where you are. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this wonderful, wonderful story, which says so simply and yet so powerfully the kind of God you are, a Father who always deals with us lovingly, kindly, and always with grace. Help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves and honest with you and gracious in our manner with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.